Well, there, there's a lot of things that we need to teach our kids in kindergarten, building off the work that the ladies do in C-Prep. They do a lot of work. And some of these lessons that we teach are obvious. They are expected. You would expect kids to need to learn all 26 letters, that that's what we do in kindergarten. You expect them to learn numbers up to 10. You expect them to learn patterns and rhyming and manners and all those. Those are things you expect to teach kids in kindergarten. But working with four- and five-year-olds means you also end up teaching them things you never thought you'd have to teach another human ever. For example, you have to teach many children how to hold a pencil. You might think you could just hand a pencil to a kid and they would immediately know what to do with it, but there is such a thing as proper and improper form. Um, That proper form is pretty important for building stamina and for proper letter formation, so we have to harp on some kids. So you get some kids who kind of nestle it between these two fingers like this, between their index and their middle finger, and write like that. You get some kids who hold it caveman style in a fist and write like this. You get some kids hold it way up at the top of the pencil, up by the eraser, and that's very strange, and it makes very delicate writing. It's a basic thing that you, you think you wouldn't have to teach, but you do. And the same goes for scissors. You wouldn't think that you would need to teach how to hold scissors. It's, it comes so natural to us, but I've seen some cutting attempts that give me goosebumps, not out of pleasure, <laughs> but out of terror, because they're going to harm themselves or somebody near to them, and they're eyes and ears and tongues are in the way and you never know what's going to happen. Everything's in the danger zone. And so you don't think you need to teach how to hold a pencil, how to hold scissors, but sometimes you do. We, we sometimes have to give behavioral lessons that you wouldn't think you'd need to, to give. Come by the kindergarten room and you might hear such words of wisdom as pants aren't for eating, buddy, or we don't hit people with their yogurt tubes, or it hurt your friend's feelings when you called them a fart butt. Those are just the crucial life lessons that my kindergarten teachers had to teach me, by the way. Um, but there's things you never think you'd have to teach a person. You have to teach these people. They're very small. And then there's gym class. I don't ever like to be around drunk people. I find it wildly uncomfortable. But trying to do exercises and games with a bunch of five-year-olds is like being surrounded by 25 very drunk, very small people. They're screaming. They're pushing each other. They have no balance, no direction, no sense of rules. They fall all over each other. They weep uncontrollably. They laugh at things that aren't funny. It, it can be hard to be around. Gym class is chaos. But still, you need to teach them basic skills. And one of those basic skills is running. You wouldn't think you needed to teach someone how to run, but you do. We start every gym class with the kids running into the gym at full tilt, running clockwise, or counterclockwise around the gym, uh, following the black line. There's literally a line that they have to follow. And it's the same every single day. And still you have kids cut across the middle and spin semicircles in the center of the gym. We tell them to run one whole lap until they get back to the beginning. And still they stop in the middle and cause a five-child pileup. Still they stop and take a break and sit on the bench and do who knows what. uh, Tie up their shoes. uh, Fall all over each other. Running is the most basic gym skill there is. And still many, many of them... (laughs) need instruction on how to do it. They need some reminding, some encouragement. All of these skills are basic, um, but that is what kindergarten and preschool exist for, to build those basic foundational skills that you can build on for the rest of their academic careers. Things like cutting and holding pencils and running straight. You have to teach them these things. Which brings us to the conclusion of Paul's uh, greeting to the Philippians in chapter 1. In one sense, 
Paul is behaving not at all like a kindergarten teacher. He is presenting this letter not as an authority figure to his students, but as one friend speaking to friends on an equal setting. And we talked about that last week. Um, so if you want to go back and hear that, if you missed it, it's on the website. But in another sense, Paul is very much behaving like a kindergarten teacher to this congregation of faithful Philippians um, because he's constantly stripping his lessons down to the most basic and fundamental truth. If last week's prayer of thanks that we looked at, verses 3 to 8, if that prayer of thanks demonstrated that the Philippians caused Paul to rejoice because their faith is so lively and so robust, as illustrated by their sacrificial gift to him, that, that the gift isn't what he rejoices for, the fact that they are so healthy and strong in their faith that they can scrape together a gift and send it in a thoughtful, loving way, that's what he rejoices over. That's what he's thankful for. Well, if that's true, then this morning's prayer of intercession refocuses the Philippians and causes them to once again commit to the basics, like a kindergarten teacher. And in these three really beautiful verses, we'll find ourselves, I hope, recommitting to the basics as well. Paul isn't just praying for a congregation of Macedonian believers some 2,000 years ago. His prayer is, is speaking to the Holy Spirit is for our behalf as well. It's a prayer for us too. And he wants all of us to double down on the foundations of our faith. So let's hear what Paul asks God for on behalf of the Philippians in verses 1, 9 to 11. And I have it up here if you want to read along. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's it. That's his prayer. So once again, just to be clear, last week we read verses 3 to 8, where Paul outlines for the Philippians the reasons why he is constantly thanking God for them. Here, he's similarly outlining what he asks God to do for his friends who are thousands of miles away from him. Paul comes between God and the Philippians asking for something that will prove mutually beneficial for both parties. That is what intercession means, to come between two parties and sort of negotiate a deal. Not that he needs to negotiate a deal for God. God is quite capable of making his own deals. But that's what the purpose of this prayer is, to come between the Philippians and God and ask for something that benefits them both. It's a good model for prayer. Um, It also highlights what Paul views as essential for anyone committed to following Jesus. However, like much of Paul's writing, and probably it could be easily argued like much of my writing, um, the prayer is a little long-winded, a little convoluted, with long run-on sentences that, that tend to result in thoughts getting tripped up and buried by other thoughts. And so to help with that problem, Gordon Fee, who is the author of one of the commentaries I read, he offered this helpful summary, which I've color-coded for extra understanding. So I'm going to reread it, and there's seven little parts that he highlights. He writes that Paul prays, one, that their love may abound more and more, that two, this might be accompanied by knowledge and moral insight, so that three, they may be able to discern what really matters, so that four, they may be pure and blameless when Christ returns, as five, they are now filled with the fruit of righteousness, that six, comes through Jesus Christ, seven, for the glory and praise of God. So items one, two, three, and five give the what of his prayer for the Philippians. It's what he wants God to give them. Item four that one in the blue, that they may be pure and blameless when Christ Jesus returns, that is the why. He wants all those yellow things to happen so that they could be pure and blameless. Uh, Item six offers the means to the ultimate goal, which is number seven. 
So all of this happens through Christ, and the ultimate purpose isn't just so that we are pure and blameless. The ultimate purpose, the ultimate goal, is so that God would be glorified, which is the ultimate goal of all things for all people. Perhaps that's no less complicated. (laughs) I mean, you can look at that and say, okay, that that didn't help. That would be fair. Um, When I read it, it helped me a little bit. But basically, Paul asks God to give the Philippians more love, which is number one, more wisdom, which is numbers two and three, and more faithful service, which is number five. Why? Well, because of item four. One benefit is for, actually, items four and seven. One benefit is for the Philippians themselves. One benefit is for God. As in all things, faith and discipleship related, the rewards vastly outweigh the challenges and struggles. So love, wisdom, and faithful service, those are hard work, right? It's not easy to be loving all the time, to be faithful all the time, to serve all the time, to be wise all the time. That is not easy. And I would add, doesn't come natural to us as sinful, broken humans. So those things are hard, but they fill us with purpose and meaning and life. They have benefits for us. There are rewards to pursuing those things. And those purposes and and meanings, that life that we seek, is always rooted in the seventh thing, the glory and greatness of God. So, Yes, this prayer is hard to achieve, harder still to perfect, impossible to perfect. But when we pursue it, when we, when we represent this prayer in our lives, it is very, very rewarding. Let's dissect it a little further. What does Paul want for the Philippians and for us? What are these basics that I've mentioned, like a kindergarten teacher, he wants us to strive for? Well, the first thing he prays is that their love might overflow with knowledge and depth of insight. That's a little hard for me to understand. I don't really know what it means for love to be filled with knowledge. Uh, what does that mean? I don't know. But to begin to answer it, I think we have to look at what he means by the word love. One verse earlier, in verse 8, it says, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. The affection of Christ Jesus. That word for affection in the Greek is the word splanknois. It's a really ugly word to say, splank knowest. Go ahead and say it with me, splank knowest. It's fitting that it's an ugly word, a gross-sounding word, because that word literally means intestines, splank knowest. It's the Greek word for intestines. In the Greek world, the heart wasn't the emotional center of the person. The guts were. The guts were where you made choices. You choose with your gut. You, you lead with your gut which is helpful for those of us whose guts are getting bigger every day. It's easier to lead with it. Um, So Paul is saying, everything in my guts, this is what he's saying in verse 8, everything in my guts wants to be with you because I care for you so much, you faithful Philippians. That's what he's saying. Everything about my emotions wants to be with you. It's not a romantic longing. It's a sense of affection. Um, It's like when I look at those insane little kindergartens running around and causing trouble and I think, just look at them. I'm so glad to be with them. They're cute little smiles and they're high-fiving each other because they can stay on the line and that's adorable. And I just like them and I want to be around them despite their insanity. Um, that's that sense of affection that he's speaking of when it comes to the Philippians. He, he's affectionate towards them with his guts. But in verse 9, Paul isn't talking about the Philippians growing in splank noise, the gut-level affection. The, the the instinctive desire to be around someone because they please you. That's not what he's saying when I want you to grow in love. He's not saying I want you to grow in affection for one another. 
Instead, Paul appeals to God that his friends might grow in that mysterious and deeply Christ-like Greek word, agape. Have you heard of that word agape? Probably if you've been around churches long enough, somebody will have said that word. I'm sure I've said that word. Agape is the holy kind of love that Jesus modeled for us, where we value another person so highly that we're willing to lay down our life, to some degree, to benefit the other person. That laying down of your life doesn't necessarily mean you'll take a bullet for them, although Jesus says that is the highest order of laying down your life for someone. I can lay down my life by laying down my dignity to share with someone who is undignified, by laying down my paycheck to help somebody who is in need, by laying down my time, laying down my energy, laying down whatever... It is I have to give to someone, sacrificing something of myself to benefit the other person. That is agape. It is a deep, sacrificial, selfless love. The kind of love we can only truly accept and emulate if we know Jesus Christ. And that knowledge of Jesus Christ, that's where that Paul mentions knowledge and insight and discernment. That's where that comes into play. You can't love what you don't know. I'll say that again. You can't love what you don't know. That's where all forms of bigotry and racism come from. We fear and reject people we don't understand. If you don't know the painful systematic oppression forced on First Nations people in this country even today, then it's easy to dismiss their pain through stereotype. It's easy to say really dismissive things to them. Excuse me. It's easy to do that if you don't know their struggle and haven't struggled, joined in their struggle with them. It's easy to hate Muslim people if you ignorantly blame every last one of them for acts of terror committed by those on the fringe. And it is those on the fringe. There may be a lot of them doing really terrible things, but they are not representatives of Islam. It's harder, instead, to be Islamophobic when you have shaken hands with a family of desperate and thankful Syrian refugees, as many of you have, or have brought them a meal, or have hugged their children. If you know those people, if you can put a face to them rather than just what the media tells you they are, if you know them, that's when you start to love them. If you don't know them, then it's easy to dismiss them. That is universally true of all things. Knowing someone or knowing about them at least is the gateway to loving them. If you don't know about them, then you can't love them. That's how relationships work. All relationships. It's a beautiful cycle of love propelling us to get to know someone. And then as we get to know them, we love them more, which allows us to get to know them better, which allows us to love them more. And that's how it perpetuates. You can't love what you don't know, and you can't truly know someone unless you love them. You can't love what you don't know, and you can't really know someone unless you love them. But there's a catch. In relationships, that increased depth of knowledge and understanding includes the unpleasant knowledge that comes with loving someone. Angie knows way more about my weaknesses and liabilities and selfish habits now than she did when we first started batting eyelashes at each other 16 years ago. She knows way more about what a jerk I am now than she did then. Why? Because she knows me better. Because we love each other and so are so intimate in everything, She knows my struggles. She knows what hurts me. She knows my weaknesses. She knows all of that stuff because she loves me more. Thankfully, because she knows me more, she loves me more. So despite all those weaknesses, and there are many, there's a long list, she is committed to loving me. I've locked her down. She is committed to loving me. (laughs) Can you imagine being with me for 15 years? 
That is agape. That is sacrificial commitment. Selfless, sacrificial commitment. Well, guess what? If it's true in a relationship like a marriage, then it's no less true when it comes to faith. It takes work and commitment to follow this Lord of ours, whom we've never seen, by the way, especially because following him means associating ourselves with some pretty strange and uncomfortable beliefs, not to mention some pretty strange and uncomfortable people. Following him is not easy. It's hard to know someone you can't see. We have lots of ways that we can know him. I'm not saying we don't, we can't know him. I'm just saying it's hard. That, that it's hard to, to grow in knowledge and love of someone who is here and who is leading and guiding us and who is in us, but who you can't shake hands with and you can't embrace like a brother. And it's hard, right? Or am I the only one who finds it hard? I, And yet, I really believe this, along with Paul, that the more you get to know Jesus, and the more you come to understand the beautiful life of grace and freedom and justice that he calls us to, the more you're able to read the stories of Jesus and apply them to your, your own life, or better yet, the more you're able to look at situations in your life and find Jesus in them. I really believe that the more we grow in knowledge of and of Jesus and understanding of Jesus, the more we can't help but love him more deeply. I really believe that. We can't help but be shaped by his love the more we know him. I know people um, who have walked away from their faith, completely given up on it, and that had a lot to do with other Christians and not to do with Jesus. And so they, they take breaks from it, but after a while they come back to Jesus and they see that even though the church is broken, that Jesus You cannot deny how good he is and how beautiful the life is that he calls us to. If you know Jesus, I really believe that the more you know and understand Jesus, you can't help but fall in love with him. Unless you are super stubborn and super proud and the kind of person who is totally unwilling to sacrifice any part of themselves. If you know Jesus and know his love, it will change you. The hard thing is, sometimes he's relying on us to be the communicators of that love. And we are not perfect. Paul and the Holy Spirit want us to love Jesus so much that our knowledge of him expands until it overflows. Paul and the Holy Spirit want us to love Jesus so much that in every moral dilemma, every action we take, every word we speak, every choice we make, we would know the proper thing to do or say. That's what it means by depth of insight. He wants us to be so full of of Jesus' love that it overflows and spreads out to the people around us and that we we can't help but see Jesus in every action of our day or be led by him. That's, That's what he wants in this prayer. Which also leads Paul's next desire for the people in verse 10, which is item number three in our list, that we may be able to discern what really matters. Discernment. Good old discernment. It's hard. The greatest mistakes in the history of the church can be found in a lack of discernment for what really matters. Probably the easiest example is the Crusades, where all the Christians in Europe decided to reconquer the Holy Land and kill a bunch of people to reclaim land. Where in Scripture do you see, especially the New Testament, do you see that land is of any importance? That that killing people brings honor to God? I, I don't really see that anywhere. It was a big mistake that the church made. Because they got focused on lesser matters, matters that are of no importance. And so, 
Many churches view what really matters as morality, and they make that their purpose. They believe they are the last vestiges of upright citizenry and that they're going to fight against the tide of evil people by loudly declaring how evil those people are. They believe God has appointed them judges and juries over the sinners around them. They are essentially Pharisees, and they make morality their highest calling. Other churches view what really matters as being powerful in a worldly sense of that word. They are in bed with politics, and they feel that they can coerce the world into salvation if they merely raise enough funds to support the right politicians to make the right laws. But nobody can be coerced into the kingdom of God. No law can save anyone, ever, period. They are obsessed with their voice in culture. They constantly refer to Christian nations, ignoring how oxymoronic that phrase truly is. It gets confusing where the line between worshipping the king ends and where worshipping the emperor begins in these kinds of churches. Still other churches view what really matters as cultural relevance, or financial prosperity, or theological rightness, or having well-attended programs, or killer potlucks. (laughs) We we maybe err on that side. Or any of a hundred thousand other lesser matters. Hear me say this. It's not that those things are unimportant. Obviously. Morality in the church Obviously important. Theological rightness, obviously important. Good financial discernment, obviously important. Political dialogue, uh, community impact, casseroles and pies, obviously important. I mean, all of those things are elements of a healthy church. It's just that they aren't the most important. None of them. They are not the most important. And it's easy for us to lose sight of what really matters. It's easy to get wrapped up in these lesser matters and dilute and cover up those things that really do matter, that ultimately matter, like matter on the day of judgment kind of matter. This was becoming the case in Philippi. Even healthy, thriving Philippi, Paul's model church to all the other churches, this was beginning to happen in Philippi, as certain people in the church began bickering over lesser selfish things. So Paul prays that, as we grow in love and knowledge, that we be better able to discern what is crucially important versus what can be set aside due to A, human ignorance, B, unimportance, or C, unity. Some things that we fight about in the church just don't need to be fights. And we get so wrapped up in fighting between each other that it tears down bonds between brothers and sisters. We fight over things that we don't understand because we have fallible, broken human minds. We fight over things that are unimportant because we are proud and we want to fight for the things we believe in. And we fight over things disregarding the sacred call to unity. And so Paul says, prays that God would help them to discern what is truly important. Because there's a lot of things we fight about that are not important. And it destroys us. So, to sum this up, When it comes to being a disciple of Jesus, well, hey, haven't you heard, love is a serious word. Hey, I think it's time you learn. I don't care what you say. I don't care what you heard. Love, love is a verb, and that's the key to all. That's a song that Angie and I like from 1992, DC Talk. Uh, Love is a verb. Love is an action. It is a choice. Love affects our behavior and our speech, and it always seeks to benefit our neighbor, especially if that neighbor is our enemy. Not even if our neighbor is our enemy. Jesus is very clear. Agape love is especially for our neighbor. This is the first of the basic kindergarten-level truths that Paul prays for us to have. That 
It's all about love. That love is central to everything we do. He wants us to grow in knowledge of that love so that that love overflows and we can discern what's really important. Love is a verb. It is active. It is a choice. The second thing Paul wants us to understand is eschatological. And that's a word I've been using a lot. Anybody remember what eschatology means? Study of end times. It's going to come up over and over in Philippians. So the second thing he wants us to understand is eschatological. It's the why of the prayer. Why this benefits ourselves. If we fulfill the first part of the prayer and grow in love, and that love increases our knowledge of Jesus, and that love makes us able to discern right and wrong, then it will, in turn, make us more pure and blameless on the last day when Jesus returns. There's the eschatology piece. If we grow in love, if we grow in knowledge, if we grow in discernment, we will become more and more pure and blameless. What's the word for becoming more and more pure and blameless, more and more like Jesus? We talked about it the last couple of weeks as well. It starts with an S. Sanctity. Sanctity is the process, and it is a process, of being made more and more like Jesus. That's what he's asking for here. And by the way, pure and blameless does not mean perfect. That is an unattainable goal, at least until we meet Jesus face to face and he makes us perfect once and for all. That pure and blameless is not what he, it doesn't mean perfect. Instead, pure means unmixed, like a batch of dough that has no yeast in it. It is pure until you add the yeast. Um, That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 5, and it's the same Greek word, that sense of being pure. Similarly, blameless means unoffending. It's a courtroom term. It means something close to legal innocence. So, in other words, Paul hopes that we will stand with pure, unmixed motives or purposes that will not offend our Lord on the day of his return. He's not saying we need to be perfect. He's saying we need to focus on the right thing. That's a bit of a punch to the gut, though, isn't it? This here pure and blameless on the day of the Lord, I hear those words and I tremble. I'm terrified of that because I know how impure and how much blame I can attribute to myself. It should cause us fear and trembling a little bit. I think that's healthy to recognize how broken we are. It's a little overwhelming to consider facing him on the last day as pure and blameless people. But that's why faithful, community-minded discipleship is so crucially important. That's why sanctification is a process, not a one-time event. If it was a one-time event and you were sanctified and now you're perfect and then you go on and continue to sin, then your sanctification means nothing. Throw it out. It's worthless. But if it's a process, processes grow and change and adapt, if it's a process, and it is, then that leaves wiggle room for error. Jesus knows we're human and he came to us anyway. It's all about growing and knowing. If we grow in love and wisdom, and if we know how to discern what is truly important, then we will be pure and blameless to him, since we've been seeking only him and his kingdom. That's what he means by pure and blameless, pure in motive. You're not motivated by self, you're motivated by God's glory. You are not blameless in that you are perfect, you're blameless because you shook off all that other nonsense to seek only the kingdom of heaven. It's not perfection, It's about growing in faith and knowing our Savior. No mixed motives, no behavior that offends Jesus. That's a high calling still, I think. It's still still something hard to, to, to strive for. But remember, love is defined by our behavior. If we love Jesus, our pure and blameless lives will bear this out. That's why Paul immediately references in the next verse the fruit of righteousness as the prayer concludes. That's item number, what is it? Let's see. Number five, item number five. 
we, we open the service by reading Psalm 1. A tree planted by, by the river will bear good fruit. That's an age-old truth that predates even Psalm 1. And Jesus references it. He talks about, um, you can tell a ki- the kind, what kind of tree it is by the fruit that it bears. So an ugly, selfish, judgmental tree will bear bitter, ugly fruit. Impure, offensive fruit, to use the language of Paul. But a righteous tree bears pure and blameless fruit. That's an old, old lesson. If we love him and know him and are defined and motivated by that love and knowledge, then that love and knowledge will manifest itself through acts of love. How is this possible? Well, Paul tells us. That's item number, I think, six. How is any of this possible? How is any of this knowledge and love and growth possible? It's only possible through Christ Jesus. It's only possible through him. This growing and knowing is a miracle of his Holy Spirit. We could not do it on his own, so he stepped in and initiated it for us. He did all the hard work for us. So all we need to do is accept the invitation and commit to that knowledge and to that love. Commit to that discernment. That right there is the basic fundamental lesson for each of us today. We can't do it on our own. We need his help. He is the author and initiator of our faith. But once we believe that, then we grow in that. We grow in that love and that belief. Even if you already know it, you can always grow in it. Even if you already know it, you can always grow in it. Even the Philippians, Paul's model church, needed Paul to pray for them to have it. To have a healthy, vibrant faith made visible through acts of loving service enabled by Christ Jesus. Focusing on Jesus above all things so that he may receive receive the glory he deserves. That's his prayer. That should be our prayer as well. To be a healthy, vibrant, faithful people whose acts of service make him known and glorified. Focusing on Jesus above all things so that he may receive the glory he deserves. I mentioned earlier how we have to teach the kindergartners how to run straight. How to run properly. It's tough. It, it begins with bodily awareness, which is a hard thing to just teach someone. But they have to be able to do it in a relatively crowded space. So here's what I do. I line them up on one side of the gym, and I have them pick a spot on the wall directly in front of them. So for me, that's you, Pat, directly in front of me. Well, now it's Pat. So I, I tell them, keep your eyes focused on that spot ahead of you. Don't look what your friends are doing to the left. Your eyes are able to see to the side a little bit. They will help you. Just keep your focus straight ahead, and that's where you'll go. If you turn your head, that's where your body will go. So if you're running and you're looking this way, you're going to veer off this way. When, so I'll line them up and they'll say, when I say go, don't worry about what's going on around you. Focus straight ahead and you will go straight. And then I say go, and invariably they start looking for where their friends are and they start going all over the place. And even the kids who are standing on a line that runs the length of the gym start on that line and end up four kids over. It's a hard lesson to learn. Regardless of its effectiveness with five-year-olds, I think the basic principle is the same for us as we study Philippians 1. Pick a spot ahead of you and your path will be straight. Pick a spot ahead of you and your path will be straight. Paul is basically praying that the excellent faith he celebrates in the earlier prayer of the Philippians, that they are so healthy and vibrant, he prays that they would grow and continue to, to manifest itself in the lives of these Philippians people. But how? How can they continue to grow? How can they, who are already healthy and great, continue to stay healthy and great? How? Well, 
you keep your eyes on the spot ahead. The goal is in front of you, and that goal is Christ Jesus. That's why Paul's always going on about the day of the Lord. It's a point ahead. It's something to look forward to with fear and trembling, but also with hope. He keeps his eyes on that spot ahead, and it keeps him from wavering to the left or to the right. Just focus on what's ahead. Keep your eyes on the goal. Jesus is everything. He is the author and initiator of our faith. He is the teacher, like a kindergarten teacher, who shows us where to focus, what to ignore, and who to run with. And that last part is something that we ignore in the sacred process of all this. Who we run with is crucially important. And Jesus helps us with that. Jesus is the end point. He's the one we focus on up ahead. Keeping our eyes on the day when we will meet him at last will cause the things of earth to grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Unimportant things melt away when we keep our eyes on what's ahead, what's above. If our eyes are focused on the goal ahead, it will have wonderful consequences for our lives today. That's the funny thing. When we start focusing on what's ahead and what's above, it doesn't mean that one day we will have that. If that's our focus now, then it will shape us now. It has wonderful consequences for our lives today. If we keep focused on the goal ahead, we will fall into that beautiful discipleship cycle of love and knowledge. Love and knowledge. Depth of love leads to depth of knowledge. Depth of knowledge increases our love. Knowing the one we love and loving the one we know. And that is Jesus. We will discern our true purposes as servants of the King and devote our resources to his glory alone. We will be nurtured if we're focused on the right thing, We will be nurtured into something pure and blameless that bears righteous fruit. We will be united in the joy of running together towards the same goal, the same purpose, and the same master. If all of our eyes are focused on the same thing, then we will all run straight. Not like, where is it? Going way back. Not like, this is not what happens in gym class. That straight lines, everyone's smiling, looking straight ahead. That is not how it works. But if it were... If all the eyes were on the, 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 the point ahead, then there's unity in that. We, we, we may bump into each other a little bit. We may clash from time to time. That's going to happen. But if our eyes are focused on what's ahead together, we will meet our goal. One more paragraph. Love and wisdom, righteousness, growth, and glory. Those are the foundations of faith. Those are the basics of biblical discipleship. There's probably others you could add to the list. I'm just mentioning five things that Paul mentioned specifically in this prayer. In order to run straight towards them, we must listen to our teacher and keep our eyes focused on the goal ahead. We can't do it without our teacher teaching us. And by teacher, I don't just mean Paul. I mean our rabbi teacher, our Jesus. It may sound simple, but you wouldn't believe how crooked some Christians get, how off the path they get, and how many crashes occur on this basic path because their eyes are not focused on what's ahead. Their eyes are focused on things below or things beside or things nowhere near anywhere it should be. And it causes crashes. We cannot be reminded of this truth enough. We cannot pray for enough help from Jesus. We cannot grow until we've mastered the basics and we cannot do it alone. I need my fellow kinder Christians, those of us here this morning, You, life is like a kindergarten class, and you're all a bunch of chaotic kindergartners with me. Even when we bump into each other or weep uncontrollably or laugh at things that aren't funny, even when we have no balance, no direction, no sense of the rules, he is faithful to get us back in line and focus us on the basics. 
And it's hard to do that when you're doing it solo. You need your brothers and sisters. He is faithful to bring us back in line and focus us on the basics. And the basics are this, bringing him glory by growing in love and knowledge of him and bearing righteous fruit. That's the basics of this thing we call Christianity. Growing in love and knowledge of him and bearing righteous fruit. For us, kinda, but mostly for him. It's his glory. That is Paul's prayer, and that's our prayer as well. And we're going to conclude by actually praying this prayer together. I know that's kind of weird. I know that's not something we normally do. But I think there's power in praying things together. That's why Shane had us do the Lord's Prayer together. So uh, let's paraphrase verses 9 to 11 together and, and turn it into our prayer to God. So, dear God, this is our prayer that our love may overflow with your knowledge and insight so that we may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Jesus' return and that we'd be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. To your praise and glory, Father God, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. locked her down. She is committed to loving me. Pants aren't for eating, buddy.